On this episode of the podcast, we pick up where we left off last week, continuing our interview with Brother Daniel Rogers on Realized Eschatology. We enjoyed this discussion, and we certainly look forward to diving into other end-time viewpoints in future episodes. But for now, we ask that you would appreciate and enjoy the second half of this interview. question here because this is something I'm going to ask Wes next week and that that I find interesting and I'm going to allow you to which he, he's kind of at a disadvantage because you're the first one we're talking to about eschatology so we're, we're kind of letting you go at it first but I'm, I'm going to see if you have any questions that you think would be good to, to have him and maybe in the future we can you know actually bring several people on maybe you and him together to, to kind of discuss this because Wes too is a is a fine Christian he he, he uh, is very grace-centered, and I know that he's not one who thinks everybody has to see things his way. And so that's what's great, and that's what our whole program and podcast is about, is this, in my opinion, is how Christianity should look, right? We should be able to come together, bring different ideas to the table, brainstorm, and if we go away leaving with different ideas, that's okay, because that's our own faith in Jesus Christ that we're working through. But here is something that I, I think what you brought up is a very strong point because if you look at Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30, which is what you just read, okay, the uh, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels in a, tr- a loud trumpet call, they, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So what you have going on there, and as you pointed out, even if you take the position that the latter part of Matthew 24 is not talking about, uh, or, or if you if you take the position, no, regardless what position you take is what I'm trying to say, Matthew 24, everybody would agree, well, yeah, that's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and we should understand that as figurative. That's what I was taught to believe, and I had no problem believing that. So I didn't think that when I read Matthew chapter 24, that Jesus literally came in the clouds, that there was a trumpet that sounded, that he gathered all of his people together in the clouds. I didn't believe that all of that was, was going to literally happen. But yet when I go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which literally reads almost verbatim <laughs> with Matthew 24, and I want to go ahead and read this to you here for the audience, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Uh, I'll just go ahead and begin in verse uh, 16. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then Paul goes on to say, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, I, I want you to kind of expound on that because I know you've written a whole book, a commentary on First Thessalonians. So give your understanding of what Paul's talking about here and why you think that Paul is talking about the same event Jesus is talking about, which is the second coming of Jesus, which was the destruction of Jerusalem. Sure. So a couple things about this passage. Uh, I would, You might go back to verse 15 and look at what he says there. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Now, scholars are divided on what that means. Some believe it's saying, well, I'm saying this by inspiration. 
but didn't, you know, wasn't everything he said supposed to be by inspiration. Um, but the other half says, well, this means he is repeating something that Jesus talked about. And so if we look at the teachings of Jesus and we try to compare, you know, what Jesus taught to what Paul is saying, there's really only one passage that matches it. And that's the one you just mentioned, Matthew 24 and verse 30. Okay. Uh, all the elements here contained in 1 Thessalonians 4 are found in, uh, in Matthew 24. For example, the Lord will come, the Lord will descend from heaven. You know, you have the angels present. There's a trumpet there. The faithful to God are gathered to Christ. Matthew 24 says the elect are gathered. First Thessalonians 4 says not only would the living ones be gathered, but the dead ones be gathered as well. And so they're, and they're called up into the clouds. So there are no different elements from Matthew 24 than there are, you know, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. In fact, just as Matthew 24 says that would happen within this generation, Paul is writing to living, breathing Christians who are being actively persecuted, uh, actively persecuted by their, by their friends, uh, townsmen and relatives. And he's giving them a word of comfort that we who are alive and remain will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord with the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. So if this was supposed to be a word of comfort, uh, then why would he be talking about something that would happen 2,000 plus years later when he says, we who are alive and remain? Now, the question is, well, what is this talking about? Well, to know what, it, to know what it's talking about, we have to think back to what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Um, if your Bible is like my Bible at all, it capitalizes letters whenever it's referring to an Old Testament passage. It's pretty good about it. You know, it can miss some or it, you know, it might add one that's not there, but it's relatively good at uh, indicating when you, when it's quoting from an Old Testament text. The, the idea of the elect being gathered together at the sound of a trumpet is a, is a reference to Isaiah chapter 27. And it is a, it's talking about the restoration of Israel. Uh, and I know that this is a huge deal, and this there's there is not enough time in the world for us to talk about this, especially what we have left today. But what it's what it's really talking about in both of these passages is God restoring the kingdom to Israel. Is uh, the the Davidic promise about the Messiah sitting on the throne and gathering together not just the northern tribes and the southern tribes, but the Gentiles as well into one body? Uh, this is what's being discussed here. Um, now, a couple things about First Thessalonians four, and you can ask Wes about this. Because uh, if you notice, when they're caught up together to meet the Lord in the to meet the Lord in the air, they'll always be with the Lord. In the typical way that we think, that means they're going to be with the Lord in heaven. But in the way that Wes believes, they're going to be with the uh, Lord on a created earth. So me and Wes have the same directional problem. You know, why are Christians still here, or why will they still be on earth if they're going to go somewhere and be with the Lord? And it comes down to the word meet. Uh, the word meet is the Greek Greek word uh, apontesis, apontesis. And it is used uh, when it's coupled with the word parousia, which is the word translated coming, as in coming of the Lord. Um, it is used to talk about a group of people, uh, go, a group of citizens going out to meet a dignitary and escorting them back to the town. For example, in Matthew chapter 25, when it talks about the, the ten virgins there, it mentions them going out to uh, to meet the bridegroom, to apontesis, to go out and meet and escort him back into the back into the uh, you know back into the town where they're going to have the wedding. And so this is not the Christians going out to meet the Lord and going off somewhere, but this is 
a celebration of the arrival of the presence, which is literally what the word coming means. Uh, the coming, the Greek word parousia, means presence. This is a celebration of the arrival of, of Christ to be among his people, is, is the way I see it. Or, or as Revelation 21 says, that God would tabernacle among them. Now, I know that's a lot, but it's a, it, it's, it's a thick subject that's filled with, uh, filled with Old Testament references that we would really need to go back and unpack to, to, to get the full scope of it all. But hopefully, <laughs> hopefully just the, the connection between Matthew 24 and uh, Matthew 25 helps to at least clarify the timing of it, if not necessarily the nature of a lot of these events. So very briefly, I know that you had talked about this at the beginning of the podcast. Give some reasons why you believe that all of this should be understood figuratively, because so far I think you've done a, a good job for your position to show why you believe that all of these events are talking, or excuse me, all of these passages are talking about the same event. So now explain why you do not believe these things are literal, but they are figurative. Sure. Um, I want to make a quick comment on the word literal because literal, you know, means it actually happened. Like you hear people misuse it all the time. Like I literally died. Well, okay. You didn't literally die. You know, you figured. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. um, so I believe that these events actually happened. I don't believe that they were fulfilled in a, in a, in a physical way, you know, like, like you say, literal way. But I want to clarify that these events have actually happened. And in fact, we participate uh, in these events whenever we, uh, whenever we are con converted or born, born again or born from above. And, uh, you know, when we are in Christ, we're participating in these events, you know, that are ongoing, you know, throughout all of time, because Christ is always present. The kingdom of God is always here and we have eternal life and salvation now. So uh, I do believe those things are literally true. I don't believe that they were fulfilled literally like, like what you mean. Um, okay. So here's, here's my big thing. And I think this is, you know, if people would just, just accept this point, I don't, you know, it, and don't accept preterism, I'm okay with it because it means that they've learned how to read their Bible just a little bit better than they did yesterday. And that is that the New Testament authors were Jewish people writing to Jewish people, or at least to Gentiles who, who very, uh, you know, who are very diligent in their study of the Hebrew scriptures to see whether these things are so. And so when we go back to Isaiah 13, for instance, we have a couple of passages I want to show you about judgment of specific nations. For example, in Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 1, we read that this is the oracle concerning Babylon. Now, we know all about the kingdom of Babylon. We know not only from the scripture, but from history uh, that Babylon conquered Jerusalem around 606 B.C. to 586 B.C. And that uh, by the time of 539 B.C., they fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. And then Cyrus the Great gave the, uh, gave the order for the Jewish people to return back home. And so the passage that we're reading about is not something that's future to us. But look at Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 6 and following, and notice how similar the language is to what we read in the New Testament. Well, for the oh, wow, I say that very southern. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It'll come as destruction from the Almighty. And go down a little bit to verse uh, 9. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. I'll punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their iniquity. I'll also put an end to arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I'll make mortal, 
I will go down to verse 13. Um, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts and the day of his burning anger. Okay. Look around, Kevin. Look around, Lee. Are we still here? Has the earth been shaken from its place? I mean, are the heavens trembling? Have the stars fallen out of the sky? No. But we believe that Babylon has been destroyed. We, you know, we believe what the history, history books tell us and what the Bible tells us, that the Medes and the Persians uh, conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. And so right there you see this fantastic language is used not to talk about the end of time, but used to talk about the end of an age, the end of an age of an empire, uh, a national judgment. And I believe that those who are so familiar with the New Testament as the first century church, when they would have read that language, they'd have read it the same way. Now, I'd like to share two more passages that I find to be just fascinating. And the first one is a few chapters over in Isaiah chapter 19. If you look at Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 1, we have another oracle. This one's concerning Egypt. He says, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. The heart of the Egyptians will melt within him. Okay, so <laughs> is he meaning that, that God's going to hop on a cumulus cloud and fly out of heaven and go get the Egyptians? Or is this language to talk about the glory of God and how the uh, and how when Egypt would fall, it wasn't just you know another nation following or falling, but it was the judgment of God upon this nation for the way that they mistreated the poor, for the way that they mistreated Israel, you know, all these sorts of things. And so, again, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. We're familiar with that language because also the New Testament, this image of Jesus riding on the cloud or coming in the clouds or meeting in the clouds used to talk about the, the glory of the Lord as the cloud is used throughout the Old Testament to speak of the Lord's glory, like in the, uh, like in the, the wilderness journey, like in the uh, dedication of the temple and dedication of the tabernacle, the cloud was present to show the presence and the glory of God. And so this is what we have in Isaiah 19, God riding on a swift cloud. Uh, finally, I want to look at one more passage. This is Nahum chapter 1. Now, a lot of these passages we don't go to because the law was nailed to the cross and we don't, you know, this is just for our learning. And so that means we shouldn't go to it at all. But, <laughs> uh, but Nahum is towards the end of your Bible. And if you begin in verse one, he says the Oracle of Nineveh. Okay. So this one's now we're, now we're talking to Nineveh. We're talking about the Assyrians, you know, these are the people that, uh, you know, Jonah got sped up on these shores. And so on down in this passage in verse four, he says, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve, or the hills melt. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all its, all notice this, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Native Americans, Mayans, you know, we're talking about people that are living in uh, Asia, people that are living in Europe. Or is he talking about that local world, the world that they knew? Like when I say, you know, my world is falling apart. This is, this is the way that uh, the writers of the Bible use this type of language. And so when I come to the New Testament and I read about the earth burning and the, the clouds being rolled back like a scroll and the stars falling from heaven and the, the moon turning to blood, what I try to do is take away my 21st century goggles of, of science and you know the age of reason and all this. And I try to go back to the first century and put myself in these Jewish original readers perspective and say, how would they have understood this language? And the answer that I keep coming back with consistently is, okay, well, this, this is fantastic, over-the-top, prophetic language to talk about the fall of the nation. 
And if someone were to write about a, you know, were to write about America uh, coming to an end or something like that, they might use those same sort of imagery. You know, the stars falling could refer to the stars on the flag. Uh, the, you know, the colors red and white, you know, they could, they could emphasize, you know, what those colors mean, those things coming to an end, you know, and the eagle fell and all this sort of stuff. We could see what type of over-the-top language could be used to discuss the fall of the America, fall of America, but none of us would assume it was talking about the actual stars falling out of the sky. And they didn't think that either when they were reading these things and listening to Jesus talk 2000 years ago. So, well, I don't think there's much in the way of disagreement with what you're saying as far as all of that goes within the churches of Christ. The biggest issue is it, it, what it boils down to really for so many of, of our people is, you know, does that mean that Jesus returned or not? That That's the biggest yes. issue and the biggest question. And when, whenever you look at Matthew 24 and you look at Thessalonians through the lens of that ancient Jewish discourse, it, it becomes much more compelling. I, I don't know if I'm there yet. I don't know that I'll ever be there. But at the same time, it's, it's really hard to ignore at that point because well, it does take that generic discourse into account. Let, let me put it into, into some pretty harsh or, you know, like tough language to do with. Okay. I mean, this, this, this is probably isn't fair language to use, but I want to use it to stress the importance of this discussion. When Paul said that we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord, you know, when he, when he indicates that some of those would be alive or when he, or when James said in James five, eight, and nine, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Or when Peter said in first Peter four, seven, the end of all things is near. Or when the Hebrews writer, you know, the woman who wrote Hebrews and he, <laughs> I can't, I can't do it with a straight face. In Hebrews 10, 37, uh, he who is, uh, let's see, in a little, little while, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. When you read those things, the question we have to ask is, are they true prophets? Do we listen to them or do we not? You know, Deuteronomy 18, the test of a true prophet. If he said, if what he says comes true, we should believe him. If what he says doesn't come true, we should reject it. So, should we accept what Paul said, what James said, what Jesus said, what the Hebrews writer said, what John said? Should we accept it or should we not? Did he come soon or did he not? Well, and to, and to the credit the of, of this position to preterism, going back to what I'd mentioned earlier, there are people who study the Bible, Christians like yourself, but also people who are not preterists who could care less about preterism because they're not a Christian. So you also have... We talked about Bart Ehrman, who is an agnostic. We talked about Muslims, who certainly aren't trying to prove a preterist point uh, because they obviously do not believe Jesus is Messiah. So they, when they study these texts, even they come away with saying, look, Jesus did not do what he said he was going to do. Uh, everything that the New Testament writers spoke about, Jesus returning in that generation, it never happened. And what you're saying is, yes, it did happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and and so, you know, I find that interesting because this isn't just something that you're pulling out of thin air. This is something that even other people who have no dog in the fight of eschatology, they could care less about the specific doctrines within Christian circles. What they What they see is, hey, when you read the New Testament, when you study the New Testament, Bart Ehrman is not a dummy. He's very intelligent and he's a scholar. And when these individuals study, they come away saying that it seems pretty clear that all of these Christians believed that Jesus was going to come 
within their generation. And why do they believe that? Well, because that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. So going back to what Lee said, I think that this poses a lot of very interesting questions, or at least it should to people who are listening. The first question I think of is, what about Hymenaeus and Philetus? Are you not considered a false teacher? Because Paul in uh, 2 Timothy talks about uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Uh, So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, What's interesting and what a lot of people might not know is that there were other people in the New Testament besides Hymenaeus and Philetus that taught that the Lord had already come. Uh, For example, in 2 Thessalonians 2, the scripture says, that you not be, well, actually, let me read verse one, because you will appreciate this now that we've done what we've done with uh, Matthew 24. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wait, wait, our say, gathering. Say, say where you're at one more time. Sorry, sorry. Second Thessalonians 2. I tend to right. go a little bit fast, uh, but you know. All right. Um, so we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Does that sound familiar to anybody from Matthew 24, uh, 29 to 31? He says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a messenger or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So there were people as early as 52 saying that Jesus had already come. But the thing is, is that's exactly what Jesus said would happen within that generation. If you think back to Matthew 24, people would say, see here or see there, or he's in the inner room or he's back here. And so uh, there are two places in in the epistles of Paul that indicate that people had taught that the coming of the Lord or the resurrection had already taken place. Now, here's the thing. If Paul's vision of the end of time was a fiery death of the universe coupled with all the bodies in the graves uh, literally rising and flying into the air to be judged with this big, great white throne and all this sort of thing, then why didn't Paul say in either of these passages, hey, just look here, look there, you know, look around, you know, why are we still here if this has already happened? Wouldn't it be obvious? See, this kind of teaching wouldn't work if the, the, the common teaching of the apostles was that the world was going to end at the coming of the Lord and at the resurrection. Yeah, so you're, so, you're saying that the faith of nobody could have been overthrown if they actually believed that their second return of Jesus was the same thing as the end of the world because obviously the world was still standing. Right. Now, even more obvious, the world was still standing. And what I mean by that is the age, because there's there's some translational problems with the word world, depending on what version you use. See, the Jewish age was still standing when Paul wrote Second Timothy, because when you look at the, uh, the timeline of events, Jerusalem fell in 70, the book of 2 Timothy was written somewhere near the end of Paul, Paul's life in the mid-60s, which means it was written before the resurrection would take place from my, from my perspective. Now, what would that do to the faith of a Gentile Christian in Ephesus where Timothy was stationed? If you've been told for the last, uh, the last 15 years that you're a second-rate Christian because you're a Gentile, and we can prove it because here's the law and here's here's the temple and there's Jerusalem. And, you know, even Paul goes on pilgrimages and things like that and keeps the law as, as Acts chapter 21 teaches. Then what does that do to Gentiles faith? Uh, there's a location apparently endorsed by God since it didn't fall like Paul said it was going to fall that Gentiles can't go into. In fact, there's a location that women can't go into. And, they, and only one person out of one tribe, out of one family can go in there into that most holy place day by day. That would wreck somebody's faith. It would confirm all the suspicions that they had. Uh, but 
one of the New Testament authors, uh, Paul in Romans 8, talks about the day that the sons of God would be revealed. So when the temple falls, now it shows that everybody can be included. Jew, Greek, bond, free, male or female, everybody has access to the most holy place. Resurrection isn't about bodies being transformed into spiritual you know, bodies of some sort, but resurrection is about a reorientation of our life from the flesh to the spirit, which Paul says uh, is death. Focus on the spirit, or rather focus on the flesh is death, but focus on the spirit is life and peace. Resurrection is about not only transforming, um, you know, transforming the old covenant Israel into new covenant Israel, but it's about exposing the lie that's in the world that the flesh is more important than the spirit and, and opening up ways to, to spread life and joy and peace, regardless of border, regardless of gender, regardless of, uh, you know, regardless of nationality. That's the message of resurrection. That's the message of the new covenant. And I think that's what eschatology or the study of the end times is all about. So you believe that's what Paul is talking about in Second uh, Timothy, where he's talking about Hymenaeus and Philetus, and specifically there in 17 and 18, how many have had their faith overthrown. And you believe yes. he's specifically talking about the Gentiles who had had their faith overthrown because they had been hearing this message of inclusion, of how everything would be equalized. And up until AD 70, obviously the temple was still there. We, we oftentimes call it a transitional period. And so sure. they were looking for a time when that, when finally it would not no longer be Judaism, it would simply be Christianity. And now you have Hymenaeus and Philetus coming along saying that the resurrection has already passed, that everything Jesus predicted had already taken place. And yet here I am a Gentile and I'm no better off than I was before. I'm no more accepted than I was before. And it seems like the Jewish system is still what really makes Christianity Christianity. Exactly. If you if you look at Acts 28, Christianity was seen as nothing more than a sect of Judaism. And so they were still considered second rate because they hadn't been circumcised. You know, they haven't obeyed the feast days. They haven't uh, they haven't conformed to the to the dietary restrictions. And so, uh, you know, the idea that they had every, you know, that, that resurrection had been completed before the temple fell, uh, you know, didn't make any doesn't make any sense to them. I mean, it would just shipwreck their faith. Now, one interesting thing about this. Um, for those of you who like to go and do word studies and things, if you go and you look at Second Timothy chapter two, and read those passages that uh, that Kevin just talked about, if you look at chapter two and verse nineteen, whenever he says uh, there, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. The first part of that passage. Is a, is a reference to the book of Numbers. Whenever the uh, sons of Korah tried to usurp the priesthood of the of uh, Moses and Aaron and those guys, and so I think what Paul is doing by by citing this text, I believe it's Numbers chapter sixteen, is he is saying that you know just like Hymenaeus and Philetus had tried to usurp the priesthood by saying that only you know a certain family could go into the temple, you know into the into the holy place, um, you know the sons of Korah had done. A millennia before. And so I think there's a strong connection between what the sons of Korah did and what Hymenaeus and Philetus was doing, trying to shipwreck the faith, take over the priesthood for themselves and, and exclude an entire group of people from participating, you know, in the holy place. So, that's like, oh, go ahead, brother. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That's a, that's a little bit of a deep point, but sometimes I, I talk to the congregation about this. Sometimes I like to give people like the end of a rope and let them go and follow it if they want to. <laughs> 
<laughs> not everybody wants to. Well, a lot of times that's the best way to do it too, because if you just unload everything on somebody all at once, it can freak people out. And it's like, Whoa, hold up there, Bubba. It can, it can get to people. But it, right. with the time that we have left, I was just, I, I would like to ask if I may some, some practical questions about this. I mean, this is one of those subjects we just really scratched the surface of. We just kind of given a general overview of, or you've given a general overview of, and I think you've done a, a masterful job of that. I think you've really shared this well, but th there are some questions that I think are burning in a lot of people's minds. And these are the questions that I've had whenever the subject's been talked about. And if I could ask a few of those and we could just sure. briefly try to touch on those, I think it'd be helpful. One of the questions is, is in light of all of this, if, if Christ has already, has already made his return and if the scriptures allude to the final judgment taking place coupled with his return, well, what does that mean for us who remain even here today within the Christian dispensation? Whenever, whenever I reach the end of my path in this life and I, and I close my eyes in death, then and what does that mean for me? Does that mean I'm not going to be judged? Because that's that's one of the statements I've heard made about this in opposition to this idea of full preterism is, is well, if that's the case, then there's no judgment. You can just do whatever you want and just live however you want to live. And that seems to be maybe overstepping the the case or overstating the case, but I still wonder what what is the preterist view of judgment for those who exist now whenever we die? It's very simple. Uh, Hebrews chapter nine and verse 27. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. I believe that you live, you die, and that's the point that you're judged. Wow, that is simple. <laughs> uh, you know, another another couple thoughts about this. We say final judgment. Well, you know, where where is final judgment in scripture? We talk about the day of judgment. Well, where is final judgment? Um, yeah, that's true. That's, that's a kind of a presupposition, isn't it? It is. It is. But here's another thing. And this is going to be a little bit philosophical. But what is time? Whenever you die, you know, are you still keeping track of time and things like that? And so, you know, the the idea that, uh, you know, the judgment is in the future, the judgment is in the past, you know, in terms of like standing before God's throne is sort of outside of time. So it's kind of a it's kind of a weird discussion to have to begin with. When you die, you know, you're not bound by time anymore. But, uh, you know, so. <laughs> just well, and, and with that idea, it's just it's always been interesting to me to think about it in those terms with, with the realm beyond existing outside of time, because that's where God is and that's where we will be. Right. This idea, the traditional view that, well, we die and then we go to either, you know, paradise or or to Taurus, you know, as part of the Hadean realm. And it's almost like a celestial waiting room where we sit and there's elevator music being played while we wait <laughs> for the final judgment day to come. That's that's always been something that's kind of been eh, uh, OK, but but that idea of of time not being a factor is a really interesting one. So I, I have a question for you in what Lee just said, talking while we're talking about the judgment day. So sure. you still believe everybody is going to, for lack of better words, be judged. And yes. this isn't just, you know, be, because the return of Jesus has already happened in your position, that doesn't mean that we are still not going to have a future judgment ourselves based upon Hebrews 9, 27, that everyone dies. That being said, two questions that I have. Okay. Hebrews 9, 27 speaks about a judgment day. And there, there's several parallels. You see this in Matthew eleven twenty two about a coming day of judgment. 
Um, you see Acts 17 to 31, where Paul talks about how everybody will be judged, you know, past, present, and future. And you also see in Acts 24, 25, when Paul defended his case before Felix, he talked about the judgment to come. And it actually says in Acts 24, 25, he was terrified. So why would a Roman be terrified with reference to an impending destruction of Judaism when he would actually be on the winning side of, of that case? Uh, or is this talking about different judgment days? Okay, so let's talk about uh, specifically about, about Felix, okay? Um, Felix, his wife's name was Drusilla from Acts chapter 24 and verse 24, and she was Jewish, right? And so when Paul goes and talks about righteous self-control and judgment, let's say that he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem uh, in AD 70. Leading up to that time was a three-and-a-half-year war between the, between the Jewish people and the Roman army. Uh, that includes, you know, all of Drusilla's family, relatives, friends, people she grew up with, things like that. Not only that, but Felix, uh, is he not a, is he not the governor over the area? I mean, what if somebody were to go to, you know, um, were to go to Donald Trump and be like, hey, there's going to be a big war here in America and, you know, people are going to die and, uh, you know, armies are going to surround and all this sort of stuff. I mean, don't you think he'd be terrified? Uh, this doesn't have to be a afterlife judgment for him to be frightened. Um, he is frightened by the fact that there's going to be civil up, you know, unrest uh, in the near future, you know, in in the territory that he's supposed to be over. Well, and that makes sense in light of those judgment statements that the Old Testament prophets wrote about concerning the judgment of Babylon, concerning the judgment of Israel. It tends to dovetail real nicely together. Well, let me show you uh, a quick passage from Luke chapter 21 and verse 25 and 26. He says, uh, there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among the nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and expectations of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And he goes on to say, you know, these things will happen within this generation, uh, you know, again, in verse 32. So he's, this is this is this is Luke's account of Matthew 24 of the of what we call the Olivet Discourse. So right there, he says one of the things that would characterize this time is is men fainting from fear and expectations of things that were coming upon the inhabited world is one way to think about that expression world. And so I think there's a complete justification for Felix being afraid. You also have another factor to bring in, and that's John 5, 24, who says that whoever believes in me has eternal life and he will not come into judgment, but he will pass from death to life. Could it be also that Hebrews 9, 27 is not even talking about a Christian judgment? Could it be that that's still talking about uh, the judgment to come in AD 70? Um, that's a good question. And I've actually had that question asked by, uh, by fellow preterists. Um, the difference is the word judgment in uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 is the word chrysis. Mm -hmm. It means determination, like, uh, you know, judging whether or not it's good or evil, you know, kind of like Second Corinthians 5.10, you know, have to. Yeah, not a, not a condemnation, done. but almost like a because I believe in rewards, you know, that there'll be a, different levels of, of rewards um, based upon how one lived their life. Not that God is judging your salvation because you're already saved. You already have heaven. But yeah, I, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, well, the, the word uh, the word judgment in John chapter five and verse 24 is also the word chrysis, but uh, 
in that context, it seems with it to carry the idea of more, uh, yeah, like you said, condemnation. Yeah, kind of yeah, like that's, uh, that's... John seven twenty four and and James three. You know, don't judge your brother. It carries more of a idea of condemning versus making a discernment. Right, because you have later in that passage talking about those who did bad deeds, you know, to the resurrection of judgment. So it's not like the good. I mean, obviously there was a determination made about those who are good, right? Yeah. But to execute judgment, uh, to bring about judgment can also mean to bring about condemnation. So I think there's, you know, there's some contextual differences between John five twenty four and uh, Hebrews nine. Um, but you don't have to go to Hebrews nine if you if you don't want to. You know, there's uh, there's also Ecclesiastes twelve. Which, which talks about, uh, you know, when the dust returns to the earth, the spirit returns to the God who gave it. And then he talks about a little bit later that, you know, God will bring every act in the judgment, uh, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. So, so if, if, if Lee's good with this, I have several pointed questions, too, that I want to ask, because we've already gone over time. But if, if we can turn this into two episodes, <laughs> if we need to, because we always it's becoming a habit, isn't it? Yeah. So so because because I do think that if people are listening, these are things that they, they want to hear. They want to hear you. Uh, you answer these things. And so I think even more important than the judgments, the resurrection. Sure. And and that is if somebody's listening to this for the first time, you have said probably things that they've never heard. And hopefully some things that have made them think, even if they don't accept it or agree with it, even right now or, or ever. But you've said some things to make them think. But what about a literal resurrection? So somebody's listening to this and they've been thinking about, I can't wait till that resurrection. I can't wait to, you know, that first Corinthians 15 where where I'm raised from the dead. I'm united with Christ. Are you telling me that that's no longer the case? Daniel, do I no longer have hope? of a future resurrection. And if I no longer have hope, then, then what's the point of living this life? So how do you answer the idea of a resurrection specifically first Corinthians chapter 15? Because in that whole context, there are people saying that once you're dead, you're done and that's it. And Paul says, okay, some among you say there's no resurrection of, of those who have died. And then he goes on to say, but there is a resurrection and this is this is why we can keep our faith. And he even talks about and, and this is kind of a multifaceted question here, but just the whole context of First Corinthians 15. But also, if you're saying that there's no future literal resurrection, how does that also take into account what Paul said about Jesus being uh, the first fruits, being resurrected? Because if he was physically bodily resurrected which you do agree that jesus was physically bodily resurrected correct yes so if you it's to make sure our audience understands you're not denying the resurrection the physical resurrection of jesus so since, since you believe in the physical resurrection of jesus and we're going to be resurrected like him how does that not only um how do you not only explain that in light of your view but also in light of your understanding of 8070 when you would basically say nobody was actually physically resurrected that this was all spiritualized that's a, that's a very good question and a very needed question and let me go ahead and say there is there is no way that I'm going to be able to to answer all those questions even if you gave me an extra hour um the <laughs> Because because this is not changing a light bulb. This is like the discussion of, you know, hey, listen, let me do it like this. If marriage, divorce, and remarriage took six episodes, you know, think how many this would take. <laughs> this subject is mentioned literally every 26 verses in the Bible. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot that's going on here. Um, let's talk about resurrection first. 
And let's talk about uh, specifically what resurrection is. Resurrection is moving from death to life. We can all agree with that, that basic definition. Now, the death that is being dealt with in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the death of Adam. As verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all be made alive. Now, when you look at the account in Genesis chapter 2, God told Adam, he said, you can, you know, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but, you know, talking about the tree of knowledge and good and evil, in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And when you get to Genesis chapter 3, you see that a death does occur. And the death that occurs is not physical death because Adam lived for another 930 years, you know, according to the uh, you know, genealogies of Genesis, you know, literal or not. And you know, we have a lead that rejects the entire Genesis 1 through 11 account uh, as even being that. No, <laughs> oh, no but, uh, you know, regardless of if it's literal or if it's, if it's scaled or whatever, if it's symbolic, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that Adam lived 930 years later and didn't die in the day that he ate the fruit. But he did die in another way, and that is that he was expelled from the Garden of Eden. He was expelled from the presence of God. And as the narrative goes, the more that the people sin, the further they travel the east, that is, the further they got away from God's presence, the further they got away from the original way of doing things, how God intended the world to work or wanted the world to work and wanted to live with the people. And so what I argue is that the death in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is not physical death under discussion, but is relational death. That is the death of Adam, the death that comes about because of sin. Now, let's, let's think about this. If Jesus dealt with sin on the cross, and there are different theories and talking about how exactly he did that. But if he dealt with sin on the cross, then why does the faithful Christian die today? Was his blood not effective in removing the death of Adam? Or was his blood not effective, I should say, in removing sin? And so if we die today, then why is it that we still die because of sin? Why do we still die because of something that's apparently been washed away and been made afresh or made anew? But see, the, the thing is, this way of talking about death is something that we're already familiar with because of our focus on baptism. Now, let me make this quick comment, and hopefully hopefully this will do for now, uh, and then I can go to one more passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah, yeah, we're just and, wanting you, I just want you to touch on it so people have an idea sure. of, of how you address this. Sure, sure. Uh, in Romans 6 and verse 4, he says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have, past tense, become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall, future tense, also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now let me make a comment about that. If I do not have to physically die on the cross to be considered with, crucified with Christ, I don't have to physically be raised from the grave to be considered risen with Christ. Jesus' death wasn't just physical, but he died to an entire system into which he was born. And he was resurrected as the firstborn of a new creation, you know, the, the, the cornerstone of the temple, the firstborn among many brethren, however way you want to say it. And it's in that way that I die to my old way of life, and I'm resurrected with him now. Uh, Jesus said, for example, in John 11, 25 and 26, this is one of my favorite passages, especially at funerals, because it's just so, so beautiful. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, which means if you're in Christ, you're in resurrection. He who believes in me will live 
even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Do we believe that? Jesus came to bring life. And uh, he came to bring freedom from the death of Adam. And this is, this is what I believe we have in him now. And this was all revealed, I believe, at the fall of Jerusalem. Now, let me show you one passage that I think every person listening to this content, uh, listen to this podcast that's within the Church of Christ can relate to. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50. Okay? Now, this to me is, uh, is really cool. And hopefully this makes you think. By the way, I don't plan on converting you in this podcast. What I really want you to do is, is, is those ideas of this is ridiculous. This is crazy. This is the most insane thing I've ever heard. I want to make those diminish slightly, not even make them go away. Just make you think, okay, well maybe he's not as crazy as I thought he was in first Corinthians 15. He says this now, this, now I say this brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Okay. Keep that in your mind. There is, there is nothing different from what Paul says there to what Jesus says in John chapter three and verses five and six. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Jesus isn't talking about them shedding their fleshly bodies to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking about them reorienting their minds from a, uh, from a fleshly existence to a to a spiritual existence. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit, so you must be born again. So when, when, when Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 is talking about the necessity of resurrection in order to enter into the kingdom of God, he's effectively talking about the necessity of being born again, the necessity of uh, not just as individuals, but as an entire people, these first century saints reorienting themselves to a spiritual mode of existence as opposed to a fleshly one. And that's why he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The thing is, most people listening to this podcast believe that they're already in the kingdom of God, but they also believe very much so that they're in their fleshly bodies. And so how can that be? He's not talking about a transition of bodies uh, of, of a body, like a physical body. He's talking about a, a transformation of a body of people from a fleshly orientation to a spiritual orientation. Now, Paul says in the very next passage in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now, let's, let's move away from the discussion of nature for a moment and focus a little bit on the, on the discussion of timing. He says, we will not all sleep. Who? Paul and the church at Corinth. Paul expected that this transformation, whatever it might be, and we can talk about that later, to occur before some people there would die. That, to me, is enough evidence to at least make us rethink how we view this, this passage. Say that, say that last part one more time. He says, I tell you, mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Paul expected some people there at Corinth to be alive when this transition would take place. We, we haven't decided on what the nature is necessarily, but we know we can see here that the timing, or at least the expectation of the timing, would be within that generation, as Jesus said in Matthew 24. That relates to that that you referenced in the in the notes that that we collaborated, put together, that idea of the crescendo of imminence. 
Yes. He's looking forward to that, to that moment. And that, that really is an interesting way to look at that passage. And, and it does make sense because, well, like you said, we all accept the idea that whenever we speak to our transformation, we're not speaking in futuristic terms. We're talking about what happens in those waters of baptism. We're talking about in that moment where we place our faith in Jesus and pledge our fidelity unto him, that we become transformed and we become new creatures. There is a transformation that takes place there. So exactly, you're, and it's real. So, and, and this goes back to what I want to reiterate to those listening, you're not denying a resurrection. You believe that any no. Christian who will ever uh, be saved, who will ever um, have fellowship with Christ will be resurrected, but you believe this is something that, that God does that is a spiritual resurrection and that it was never physical. Even in, the, in AD 70, you're saying that there was never literally physical bodies that were being raised out of the grave like a zombie movie, right? Right. Now, I will say there are people that are preterists that do believe that and do believe in a, in a literal ascension that took place in AD 70. And so there are people that actually believe that. And, so, uh, so let me let me ask this as a follow up. OK, OK. So, so with everything you just said. So once again, just uh, since this is I want to continue and continue and continue to say this is probably new to a lot of people. So I want to repeat a lot of things so that people are following along. Sure. If you don't believe that there is a future, if you don't believe there was never a literal resurrection, I mean, and once again, not talking about Jesus, everybody here believes that Jesus was physically bodily resurrected. We're not talking about that. Just like we believe that he was physically, literally crucified. We don't believe that we are physically, literally crucified for Jesus, even though Paul says we are. So right. if, if that's the case, how do you address the scriptures that speak of a resurrection, not just for the good, but also for the evil and the wicked. Because it sounds like so far, everything you're saying would work, but only within the framework of if the righteous are under sure. consideration. But since we do know that the Bible speaks, at least in Daniel 12, 2 and Acts 24, 15, and I want to read John 5 because I think that's the one that, uh, well, personally, I'm just interested in hearing how you respond to this. Je yeah, yeah. Jesus says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And then he says, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so we do see, of course, I believe that the final fate of the wicked is destruction. But before sure. that, we do see here in John 5 that there is a resurrection of both the wicked and the righteous and Jesus even speaks of them coming out of the tombs. And so how, how do you deal with this passage? All right. First off, I love that you brought up Daniel 12, 2 and Acts 24, 14 and 15 in conjunction with John 5, 28 and 29. Because uh, where, did, where did Jesus get this discussion of resurrection of the just and the unjust? Where did Paul get it in Acts 24? Paul says he was talking about what the prophets talked about. Well, the only Old Testament passage that mentions resurrection of the just and the unjust specifically is Daniel chapter 12. And so I would love to go there after I go to John 5 for you. So let's go to John chapter 5 and let's take a look at what's being discussed. Um, here is a pitfall that many preterists fall into. And here's a pitfall that many other people fall into. And that is taking a word or, a, or an image and forcing it to apply in every situation. Now, uh, I, 
I believe in using similar language to help interpret other passages, but only if we're very careful in, uh, in determining the context of those texts. Every passage I've taken you to today, uh, I've done my best to honor the context. I don't want to go and proof text any passage, if at all possible. Okay? So when we look at John chapter 5, 24 through 29, and we talk about resurrection, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul isn't focused on those, those who are wicked. He's talking about those who accepted the gospel, who are faithful unto the Old Testament, and who were living then that had accepted the gospel as well. So he's not concerned with the wicked. And so when he's talking about preparing people for the kingdom of God, uh, he uses resurrection in that way to talk about transition from death and Adam to life in Christ. John 5, I believe, is, uh, is, is talking about a specific element of resurrection, and that is uh, resurrection out of the Hadean realm, out of Hades, to be judged to determine their you know final destination, whether it be in presence with Christ or whether it be annihilation, as you as you mentioned, Kyle or Kevin, Kyle's mother friend. Um, you don't even know my name stuff. anymore. Yeah, I know. Well, your th- your your label says Doctor Rev Kev, so <laughs> you know I don't know what to call you anymore. Yeah. Having having all these people on our podcast has really been a humbling thing, and it's part of my insecurity. I have to I have to make myself feel good. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so John five I think is talking about a uh, really a transition from Hades to you know their final destination. But let me. Let me let me look at this though. Let's let's break this passage down. Go back to verse twenty-four because you read this a bit ago, and I wonder if people caught it. Let's read it. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into condemnation or judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Now, notice the past tense element of this. Uh, if you look at a lot of postmillennial scholars and premillennial scholars, what they talk about is this thing called the already but not yet, and so. I just want to make you aware of his existence. There are some cases where things are talked about, like the kingdom is past. There are some cases where the kingdom is talked about as being future. And so, you know, there, there is this element to Jesus's teaching that would take a while to unpack. But just notice he talks about passing out of death and the life based on one's uh, faith. Then he says in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now, who's the dead? He's, he's talking about those who needed uh, Christ in their life, those, those who had not yet passed out of death into life, those who were spiritually separated from God is another way that you can say, uh, say that. He says in verse 26, For just as the Father has life in himself, that is covenantally, uh, you know, if you're in covenant with God, you have life. If you're not, you have death. Even so, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. That's why we talk about being in Christ. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So here's, here's how he does that. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Now, what's the, the difference between the hour is coming in verse 28 and the hour is coming and now is in verse 25? All who, who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. And those who do good deeds to resurrection of life those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And I think what this is talking about, it, multiple things. One is their response to the gospel uh, at the time of the at the time of the restoration of Israel. Uh, there's, there's just so, man, I'm telling you, it's like rewiring a house. There's so much that I have to say that I can't say. No, you're doing a good job explaining it. This. You really are. Yeah, and, and those who reject it come to a, 
you know, they're raised to condemnation. You know, they're they're not going to be able to enter into the kingdom. And so I don't see a difference between verses 28 and 29 and verse 25. But let me let me give you just a tad bit more information. And I love this. I get so excited about this passage. Go look back at John chapter four. This these expressions, the hour is coming and now is and the hour is coming are not new to Jesus's lips. It wasn't that a beautiful way of saying it. But in John chapter four and verse 20, this Samaritan woman has a question. Her question is, where do we worship? Do we worship on our mountain or do we worship on the mountain at Jerusalem? This temple or that temple? Our location, their location. Where's the right place? He says this in verse 21. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Mm. Now, why is that? Because within a generation, it was going to be obliterated. The entire country was going to be flattened in this Jewish-Roman war. But here's what he says in verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people seek the Father to be, uh, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So the hour is coming and now is, is this transitional period of time when they're gearing up for the doing away of the old covenant and the full revelation of the new covenant. But the hour is coming refers to the end of the old covenant age when, hey, you're not going to worship here or there. Why? It's all going to be flattened. It's all going to be gone. There's not going to be any, there's not going to be any more debate about it because there's not going to be any more places, right? And so to me, when Jesus uses that expression, the hour is coming and now is, and the hour is coming, in John chapter 5, he's using it in the same way. Now, during this transitional period, later when, uh, you know, later when Jerusalem falls, when this when this reaches its climax. So that's real quick thumbnail sketch of John 5. I hope that's, <laughs> that, yeah, that's definitely adequate, man. That's uh, you, you really have done a really good job of taking something super, super dense and and presenting it in a way that's at least somewhat easy to absorb and like kevin said this is one of those things that we could go on about and on about and on about but i am approaching the end of my time that's available so i'm gonna have to step off soon so before we before we bring this to a close are there any other questions kevin that you definitely want to touch on before we leave or daniel is there anything else that you want to say before we before we wrap it up Yeah, before I go, I really want to mention something about the resurrection of the just and the unjust. I want to give just one more passage. Uh, Daniel chapter 12. You have to see this. This is amazing. He says in verse 1, Now at that time, Michael the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 21, if you recall. Okay? Then he says this in verse two, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. The very passage that is, that is, that is cited by the New Testament authors to talk about the resurrection of the just and the unjust, Jesus quotes from in Matthew 24 to talk about the tribulation that was coming upon that generation. So why have we separated Daniel 12, verse 1, and Daniel 12, verse 2 by 2,000 years? Yeah, and Jesus and even says, as the prophet Daniel said, so clearly ex- he's attaching those exactly. things together. Exactly, and he talks about that abomination of desolation right here in, in Daniel chapter 12. So, so, so I have, how much time do you have left, Lee? I've got about another 10 minutes before I've okay. got a bust out, so, brother. So, so right. I've, I've got one question yeah. that, this is a question I ask anybody for any view because, and I, you can ask Lee, cause this is something I asked him. This is, I'm getting more into early church history. And when I say sure. early church history, for those who are listening, I know you understand, but those who may not, I'm talking about people who lived after 
the time of the apostles, those who who lived after the time of the writings of the New Testament. So some people call them the church fathers, but these are men who were not inspired by God, but they were Christians who lived um, within, you know, a hundred years past later and just all the way up, you know, for the first four, five, six hundred years after the first Christians. So my question is this, getting outside of the New Testament into the early church history, are there any Christians in the early church post the apostles who believed this view of the Lord's return? Is there any evidence that this is what they believed? I'm going to be completely honest. There are people uh, who I know of in the early church fathers who held uh, very strong partial preterist views, but I do not know of any that were full preterist. Um, however, let me say, let me say this: in you know around the year uh, around the year three you know three hundred or so you know when around when Constantine the Great was born uh, and when he began to reign as emperor and he was converted to Christianity. Uh, you know, you have ever since then what some of people called a conversion of Christianity, uh, not not just Constantine's conversion, but he converted Christianity. I mean, he even used the Bible to justify some of the some of the violence that he had he had done in the Roman Empire. And so there we, we have to understand that just because we don't have any record of people believing this in the first few hundred years that I'm aware of uh, doesn't mean that they didn't exist. We, what we have is the collection of work that we've been allowed to have, uh, you know, over the last 2000 years. Um, there's, there's many documents that have gone untranslated and we don't have access to, you know, just yet. They haven't been released to the public. And so just because there is a, there's a lack of information doesn't mean that there weren't Christians that, that existed that believe that. And by the way, even if there, even if there weren't Christians that existed that believe that, um, you know, I, I have to go on what, you know, what I see in the scripture. And if, if, if what I see in the scripture, you know, disagrees with, with people throughout history, even the majority of people throughout history, I feel more obligated and compelled to, to, to adopt that view than to adopt other views. Uh, you know, Kevin, as well as I do, some of the perversions that quickly entered into the early church fathers dealing with baptism and, you know, you have to be baptized, you know, you can only be baptized once and, you know, then you can never sin again. And right. Yeah. You have Tertullian and yeah, Tertullian and Hermas and, and these guys who, who and, I, and I want to bring that point up just to let people know that it, the early church fathers, their writings, not a single one were Jewish. And the, exactly. re the reason why exactly. that's, that's important is because they had a lot of misunderstanding on Jewish language or, or Jewish topics and context because they did not have what, what the Jews had because they were not Jewish. They had pagan backgrounds. They had been converted out of paganism. And that's one reason why Tertullian and uh, the uh, Hermas, uh, they, they believed that, uh, that they you could not repent after you were baptized. Uh, there was a debate on if you could repent once versus if you shouldn't repent, if you didn't have any opportunity to repent. That's because they went to Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 and Hebrews 10 to say, well, you can no longer repent. There no longer remains forgiveness if you sin, if you continue sinning. Well, in the Jewish language, that doesn't mean if you mess up after you're converted, it means if you completely turn away. It means if you're no longer committed to Christ if you have completely rebelled and turned away. That's what that's talking about. But they had understood that in a literal, straightforward sense. And so, yes, I agree with you that just because there may not be evidence of the early church, there's a lot of things 
today we would disagree with on most of the early church fathers uh, and, and people continue to disagree with throughout history. But one thing I want to end with since, since there's just a few minutes left is the reiteration that you believe that Jesus was literally resurrected and yes. you believe that, and, and when I say literally, I mean physically bodily resurrected and yes. you believe that we too have a resurrection but you believe that the resurrection is a spiritual one, not a physical one. So in the long run, aside from theology, aside from getting to the text of mentally coming to different conclusions, does this ultimately affect our walk with the Lord? No, not, not on a, not on a practical day by day basis. No. Yeah. I, I think it has wonderful implications for, uh, you know, for, for, uh, you know, uh, politics and for things like that. And, you know, uh, and care for the earth and things, because if the world's not going to, you know, die in a fiery, you know, coming of the Lord in the next few years, we ought to take care of it, you know? So there's, there's wonderful implications, but nothing that changes day-to-day Christian living. Yeah. And this is interesting because in our next episode, we're going to have Wes McAdams come on, who talks about a new heavens and new earth that's all physical. And so where you have spiritualized everything, he's going to make everything physical. And so it's going to be interesting to compare and contrast, especially for our audience listening, to hear these different views. And and I think ultimately it's so vital people understand that when someone holds a view they do so because they have sincerely studied it out. I don't think after listening today, anybody can doubt your sincerity, your love for God, the fact that you have spent a long time going through these passages on your own to study and as well as going through research to come to your own conclusions. And so, you know, I was reading a few articles before this podcast, we started this, and it was about how evil those who hold preterism are. And, you know, if, if you believe in preterism, you're just a heretic and you're a person who doesn't care about God. Folks, if you're listening, we have got to do away with that rhetoric. We have got to do away with it. And not, not just with preterism. I'm talking about when someone disagrees with you, we have got to quit dehumanizing them. I understand that's the way that our leaders in the country behave. And I understand that's the way our people in, in the world and politics on both sides behave that they want to try to make the other side look like the, the worst person in the world. As Christians, part of part of our testimony should be the fact that we can love each other despite our disagreements and we can uh, accommodate one another by allowing them to explain why they believe what they believe is we just work out our own salvation. And so the fact Daniel doesn't deny Jesus, he doesn't deny the resurrection, the fact he doesn't deny his own resurrection, he just sees it differently. I don't see why this would be anything that someone would... You, you may disagree with it, but I don't see why anyone would think that Daniel is not uh, a believer who is someone who is trying to follow Christ. Yeah, Amen. And, and, Amen. And, and, and for the record, you know, I believe that we go to heaven when we die. And so, you know, there's, if you want to call that a type of resurrection, you can, but, you know, I think the point is of any eschatology is that God wins. And if we can agree with that, then I don't have any problem with you. You know, I condemn ugliness on both sides. I know people in the preterist camp, that are, that are just vicious and they attack and they call names. And I know people in the other, you know, in the traditional view that are vicious attack and call names. And I condemn both of that because both of those, you know, that attitude is just totally illegitimate and has no, no place in Christian discussion. It completely is anathema to what it means to follow Christ. It is not showing love for neighbor. It's not showing a love for the truth. 
it's it's completely opposed to the type of people that God would have us be. And that's part of what Kevin and I want to accomplish with this podcast. And that's why we're so thankful, Brother Daniel, that you have had a willingness to join us on this episode and to discuss this because neither Kevin or I could do this topic justice. I mean, there's no way that we could elucidate the information that you have and, and present it like you have presented it. And there's no way that we could present it in a favorable way. There's no way we could present an opposition to it. Maybe Kevin could, it's not something I've really studied much, but I am so appreciative of your posture and of your attitude and just your entire demeanor in all of this, man. Yeah, I think you've done a, an amazing job presenting what you believe and why you believe it. And we're we're indebted to you and extremely thankful for your willingness to join us, brother. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, you know, like I said, I've listened to your guys' podcasts. And what I love about you guys is that uh, you take difficult subjects that people have doubts about, but they don't want to express those doubts, and you give them the language to deal with it. Uh, you did that with with many people with the marriage, divorce and remarriage podcast, uh, because I know a lot of people that were, that were un, uh, you know, uneasy with the traditional views of marriage, divorce and remarriage, but they didn't have the tools in their arsenal to rethink it, you know, for themselves. And you provided them with those tools in that language. And so I can't praise your podcast enough. Well, thank you, brother. We appreciate it tremendously. Daniel, thank you once again for being with us. Thank you for joining us today and taking time out of your schedule. Where can people find more of your work and where can people find you on the internet? Sure. Uh, if you want to go and read articles, I just I post a little bitty articles. I try to post them every day at uh, labornotinvain.com. That's L-A-B-O-R-N-O-T-I-N-V-A-I-N.com. Uh, you can also look up all of our Bible classes and sermons and podcasts and things like that on YouTube. All you really have to do is just go search Daniel Rogers Church of Christ and I'll pop up pretty quick. Ignore the negative videos and go straight to my channel <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, you'll, and you'll be okay. <laughs> Very cool. Now, um, do you have, have you written any books or have anything else that, that people could buy or purchase? I have. I've written two books, uh, one on the death of Adam. It's called The Last Enemy and the Triumph of Christ. It's available through Amazon and through Kindle. And I also wrote a verse-by-verse -verse commentary on First and Second Thessalonians. And it's meant to be for the, uh, you know, it's not, meant, it's not written to preachers. It's written to everyday people. So if you want to go check those two books out, actually, my commentary on First and Second Thessalonians is available for free through PDF and through eSword if you want to head to my website and look at it there. Fantastic. We'll be sure and get those links from you and we'll put those in the show notes and that way you guys have easy access to it. So thank you all so much for listening. We appreciate all of you and we will see you again soon.